0: following program is brought to you by your friends at podcast one
1: when you're wearing the right outfit it feels good like finding an onion ring in your french fries good feel that way every single day when you work with a trunk club personal stylist meet your stylist at trunkclub.com that's t-r-u-n-k-c-l-u-b.com
2: it's sort of like getting into a nightclub there's always three ways in there's the first door where 99 percent of people wait in line hoping to get in. That's the entrance where the line curves around the block. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and the celebrities go through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You're either born into it or you wait your turn. But what I've learned, and I'm sure what you've seen in all your interviews as well, is that there's always, always the third
0: door. Welcome to the Forbes interview. I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do in-depth interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers.
3: Before we take a listen, just want to give a quick but important thank you to Rocket Mortgage and ZipRecruiter. Right now, you can experience ZipRecruiter for free, saving you a couple hundred bucks when you go to ZipRecruiter.com. You'll hear more about these companies later in the show.
0: Today, we have Alex Benayan, who is the author of the new book, the third door, and Alex has spent seven years tracking down and trying to get access to some of the smartest people in business and entertainment to kind of learn their secret, find out how they got started. These are the kind of people that we like to have on the show. So, Alex, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Steve.
0: And I think you've might have broken a record because I've never—you might be the first author who's ever done a business book that interviewed both Bill Gates and Pitbull. So that—that's definitely a good record. <laughs> That's a good record to have. But we met years ago when you were still in college, and you, uh, we met at, I think, uh, one of the big Summit Series events, and you were billing yourself as the world's youngest venture capitalist, um, which is probably true, and you uh, are former under 30 at Forbes, which is awesome. And then you had this crazy idea of doing this book of basically finding the people you really admire and tracking them down. So tell me about this crazy idea.
2: So like you said, it started about seven years ago. I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, and I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. And to understand why I was going through this crisis, you have to understand that I'm the son of Jewish immigrants, which pretty much means I came out of the womb, my mom cradled me in her arms, and then she stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. So... You know, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween as a kid. I went to pre-med summer camp. And by the time I got to college—
0: You had to be the doctor.
2: I It, it wasn't even a question. It was 100% set in stone. And I, I thought it was a great idea, too, because it was my parents' dream and my grandparents' dream. But I remember just the first few weeks of college, you know, hitting snooze five or six times each morning, looking at my— you know, pile of biology books on my desk Feeling like they were sucking the life out of me mm. And, you know, at first I thought You know, I'm just being lazy But eventually I realized Maybe I'm not on my path Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on And I'm just rolling down So that question evolved into how all these people You know, not only did I not know what I wanted to do How did, you know, Bill Gates When he was 19 years old Selling software out of his dorm room How did he do it? Yeah.
0: Well, the good thing with you is You learned that when you are 18 Instead of going to medical school <laughs> And like grinding it out and realizing that you hate it. It's very funny what um, – I mean it's good you found that early. And also it's amazing the hard work you'll do if you're passionate about something opposed to the hard work you can't do if it's just boring. Or not not boring. Boring for you. Not the right fit for you.
2: I, I 100% agree. And it's funny because I I couldn't crack open the biology books. But the second I started having these questions, I, you know, I was going 100 miles an hour. So I was reading biographies and business books and self-help books looking for this one book about how all these people who I admired, when they were just starting out, when no one wanted to take their meetings or take their calls, how they were able to break through and launch their career. But event- eventually, I was left empty-handed. And that's when I thought, well, if no one's going to write the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? Mm-hmm. And that I thought would be the easy part. I thought I could just, you know, I was 18. I was extremely naive, so I thought I could call Bill Gates up, interview him. I'll be done by the end of summer, and I can, you know, go on my way. That I thought was the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting money to fund the journey. You know, I was buried in tuition payments. Mm -hmm. I was all out of our mitzvah cash, so there had to be a way to get some quick money. So, Steve, two nights before my freshman year final exams, I was in the library doing what everyone does the night before finals.
0: I was on Facebook. <laughs> and Luckily, Facebook fun. came after I was in college. I didn't have that temptation, <laughs> thank God.
2: Oh my God. It was, you know, I remember like the entire sea of rows in the library. Just everyone was open to Facebook. And I found someone posting with free tickets to the Price is Right. And the game show was filming a few miles away from our campus. And that's when I thought, what if I go on the show and win some money
0: to fund this dream? That makes you know, not sense. My- that makes sense. <laughs> that's, that's what you learn in college, how to bring the prices right.
2: You know, not my brightest moment, but you know, I'd never seen a full episode of the show before. It was you know, not a good idea, but it was one of those moments where it feels like someone tied a rope around your gut and was pulling you in a direction. So that night, I did the logical thing, and I pulled an all-nighter to study but I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the prices right.
0: Where does one find that information?
2: You know, on the 23rd page of Google. <laughs> like, <laughs> like really deep, deep, deep into the web. And, you know, I created this ridiculous strategy and I ended up going on the show the next day, executing that strategy, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat. And that's how I funded the whole book.
0: How did you get on the prices right, A, but how did you win it, B. Okay, so the way, you know, if you watch the
2: show, they make it look like this lottery. You know, Steve, come on down. As if they na- pulled your name out of a hat, yeah. right?
0: What well, I learned... I, I got to remember because I haven't seen the prices right since I, I, I was, probably had the flu um, back in <laughs> 1994 in New Jersey. But that's like, you know, you lay at home sick and watch the show.
2: It hasn't changed one bit all since right, then. All right, all right. So what I learned in the all-nighter... Is that there's a producer who interviews every single person in the audience before the show begins? Okay, and then what I learned, you know, at around four a.m. on some, someone posted a comment on an old blog post (laughs) saying that there's also an undercover producer who then confirms or denies the casting producer's selection.
0: I wanted that job.
2: So Right? So it's not a it's not a 10-second interview like everyone thinks. It's actually a four-hour interview the whole time you're in the studio waiting to get on the show.
0: That's how you get on the cover of Forbes. We have the same process.
2: <laughs> you're the producer, but you have a secret agent walking yes. around New York City. That's, that's
0: my producer, Karen, right here. He's making <laughs> sure.
2: So Hacking the Price is Right was less Einstein and more Forrest Gump, but it was just a crazy adventure, and that really is what launched this whole book journey.
0: How much money did you make from the Price is Right?
2: I made so this I sold the sailboat for twenty thousand dollars, which you know for a broke college student who's eating chipotle like that lasts a very long time
0: so you sold this boat and then it's interesting because you're not a shy guy, you, obviously most people you know they're 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 going to go on the their their solution is prices right you're a hustler you're very uh, outgoing um and so you decided to basically write a book about people who kind of make their own opportunities right
2: right the whole premise of the book. You know, when I started, I didn't, I wasn't really looking for one of those, you know, one secret to success kind of things. You know, we've all seen those videos and I don't really believe in that. But what I learned after doing all these interviews over the past seven years is that it doesn't matter if it's, you know, Maya Angelou who grew up in Stamps, Arkansas or Buffett who grew up in Omaha or Gates who grew up in Seattle, no matter where they're from or what they did, they all treat life the exact same way. And which way the that? You know, the analogy that came to me because I was 21 at the time was it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. There's the first door where 99% of people wait in line hoping to get in. That's the entrance where the line curves around the block.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and the celebrities go through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making us feel like those are the only two ways in. You're either born into it or you wait your turn. But what I've learned, and I'm sure what you've seen in all your interviews, as well is that, there's always, always the third door, and it's the door where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way.
0: It's like, like the, it's add, like it's like Goodfellas.
2: Yes, exactly that scene where they walk in, go through the kitchen. Except you don't yeah.
0: have to be in the mafia, hopefully. Um, <laughs> and, and so you're saying is the the third door is like you have to actually just like take action, take a risk, and just basically fight your way in? Is that is that the idea? A
2: hundred percent. You know, Buffett didn't raise his first fund by just, you know, getting an internship and climbing the ladder and hoping, you know, someone handed him an opportunity. Maya Angelou didn't write her first book that way. Every single person had to take the third door. They didn't have a choice.
0: And the interesting thing about this story is I I think you talked to me about, it was supposed to be a, a book, you know, it was going to be a, a, a standard business book, and a standard business book, but a, a kind of a collection of biographies and lessons. Right, exactly. But Great memory. To get, but it turns out, as getting in these, getting in touch with these people, you yourself had to hustle and get through that third door to even start doing this book about the third door.
2: Exactly. The original premise of this book, when you and I first met, was you know, I was this young kid and I just thought if I go and interview all these people and gather their wisdom, you know, each chapter can be its own person, you know, chapter one, Bill Gates, chapter two, Buffett. And I thought, you know, I could just do Q and A's and that would suffice. Yeah. But it wasn't until I got my, you know, my publishing deal. And I met with my editor about a year into it. I remember I was in New York and this incredible editor, his name is Rick Horgan. He calls me into his office and he's like, Alex, you know, he has this real gruff voice. He goes, Alex, what's the point of your book? <laughs> is it to inform people or to inspire people? to change their lives? And, you know, that's a weird question to get a year into your publishing deal.
0: That's a very scary question to get as an author.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. You, you've been in a similar situation, I'm sure. He goes, you know, what's the point? And I go, well, you know, I, I hope to change lives. And he goes, well, the book you're writing is not going to do that. And I'm like, what, what the f***? Like, we've been working together for a year. Why haven't you said anything? And he goes, I have a son your age. You wouldn't have listened. <laughs> <laughs> so. So he goes on to explain something to me that was very new to me, but I'm sure, you know, makes complete sense to you, which is, you know, the stories that change people's lives are the exact same. Whether it's, you know, The Matrix or The Odyssey or Harry Potter, it's this character who goes on a journey. And as that character evolves and learns lessons and changes, the reader changes along with him. So, you know, I tell my editor, "Okay, who should be our main character? Should it be Bill Gates? Should it be Spielberg?" And he's like, "No, it it's you." <laughs> and you know, it it took me at, seriously about 3 months to really wrestle with that idea, but what I learned is that facts and whiz, you know, facts and tools, no matter how great they are, if you give them to someone, their life can still feel stuck. But when you change what someone believes is possible, they'll never be the same. And the way the book is written now is as this page-turning narrative so the reader can come along the journey and learn these lessons with me. Mm-hmm.
0: And then kind of root for you as you're trying to get in touch with these people. It's, it's almost like – it's interesting. You kind of – you wrote in – instead of just like writing like the the takeaways and the best of, you wrote the the struggle and kind of like the journey to get into each single person's room.
2: Right. Exactly. And what – yeah. And the funny, you know, the funny stuff is that I wanted to write this book of how, like, you know, it was so easy for me to get all these interviews, and that was the exact opposite. You know, with Warren Buffett, I had to hack his shareholders meeting, and it ended in a complete disaster. With Mark Zuckerberg, you know, someone threatened to call the police on me if I went and showed up to the meeting. It was this, you know, crazy journey, and that's what makes the book so fun to read.
0: How do you balance between like being persistent and – but like you said, like having the cops called and you were being like super – there's a difference between being persistent and also being like a pest. How does one in, – in, any, in anything, not just writing a book but in any business or any social kind of thing, how do you go from like this person is, is – wants it to like this person's a stalker? What's that fine line?
2: So that's probably one of the best questions because that was one of the hardest lessons I had to learn on this journey. I was I was the former in the sense that you know I had read all these business books that say persistence is the key to success, so I thought you know the more I turned the key, the sooner the door would open. But what I learned, you know, I spent I went on this eight month quest trying to interview Warren Buffett. I wrote letters to his office. I called his you know I called his office and his assistant every week. And after I believe eight there were, flo-
0: were bouquets of flowers involved, I, I think. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So, you know, it was a, it ended up being, I was so persistent that after this eight month quest, which ended in disaster, I finally did get the interview with Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. And Gates's office liked the interview so much that they offered to help and call Buffett's office to make the interview happen there. But what ended up happening is that Buffett's office responded to Gates' office essentially saying, We know all about Alex. Yeah. Not going to happen. And that lesson, you know, threw me to the floor. And I realized for the first time in my life that there is a such thing as over-persistence. You know, you can bang on the door so much that they put a deadbolt and call security. And what I learned is that I dug myself into such a deep hole that even Bill Gates couldn't pull me out.
3: And we'll be right back after this quick break. Is your company hiring? Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just crossing your fingers that the right people will see it. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, listeners to the Forbes Interview Podcast can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes and save yourself a couple hundred bucks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash Forbes. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.
0: Give me some examples of some of these people that was their, their launch pad, what, what they did to really take off that was unconventional. And start with Buffett. So
2: Buffett has done a handful of things, and all those stories are in there, but the one that stands out the most to me is, so he goes to Columbia Business School because he wants to be mentored by Benjamin Graham, who you know, everyone knows is the father of value investing. And Buffett goes to Graham, joins his class, you know, gets an A, Graham takes a liking to him, and finally, at the end of business school, all of Buffett's classmates are applying for corporations and, you know, those big blue chip companies. Mm -hmm. And Buffett decides he's not going to apply to any of them. And he's going to offer to work for Benjamin Graham. So Benjamin Graham, you know, listens to a star student ask for a job offer and says no.
1: Hmm.
2: And the context is actually pretty interesting to me. At that time, Wall Street was fairly anti-Semitic. And Benjamin Graham, who was Jewish, said since there wasn't enough open jobs on wall street for jews he was solely going to hire jews for his firm and Mm -hmm. buffett who wasn't jewish you know got got rejected but buffett decided he still wasn't going to go get a blue chip job and he ended up going back to omaha and just in his own words pestering graham over the course of two years until graham you know and offering to work for free until graham finally said yes and buffett you know, the second Graham said yes, Buffett flew out to New York without mm-hmm. even asking if there was any pay and got a desk outside of Graham's office, you know, eavesdropping on his phone calls, spending you know late nights in his office until when Graham finally shut down his firm a couple of years later, and all of Graham's LPs wanted to know where to invest their money. Mm-hmm. He said, "You know, there's a young guy who I really like named Warren Buffett is starting his own fund." Wow. and that's how Buffett launched his career. So what he did is fascinating to me. He was he did value investing for his own career in the sense that instead of, you know, getting short term gains by trying to get a job that paid the most up front, Buffett offered to work for free, which ended up paying way more in the long
0: term. Wow. And he was persistent in working for Graham.
2: Right. And, about- and offered to work for
0: free, which is fascinating. He should have just converted, it. it would have been a lot easier. So you got the Buffett lesson, and then go through. I want to hear more of the people you interviewed. Give me, the, give me the, the, the list. So
2: the way this whole interview list came together is I sat down with my best friends. We were all 18 at the time, and I asked them, if we can make our dream university, who would be our professors? So we're like, all right, Gates would teach us business. Maya Angela would teach us poetry. Jane Goodall, science. Uh, Steve Wozniak, computer science. Zuckerberg would teach us tech. And that became the what about essence pi- what about of- you know, Pitbull can teach us Latin American studies. There we go. So. <laughs> so that became almost the treasure map for this journey. And thankfully, almost all those people are in the book. So like you said, Pitbull and Maya Angelou and Jane Goodall and Larry King and Jessica Alba, and Quincy Jones. It's been this incredible journey. And the thing that has surprised me most is how, you know, you, you brought up Pitbull before, Everyone sees him on stage, you know, pumping his fist, saying, "Dale." you never would think that he is one of the most astute and wise businessmen I've ever come across, which is crazy in in a book about talking to incredibly successful business people.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, which I'm always asked, like, what's like some of my most surprising interviews? And I was going to ask you, like, who are some of them? I mean, these are all incredible people, but. Who stood out and I mean, who had a surprising story or who you met in person that was so different than they are in their public persona? And I guess Pitbull stands out.
2: Pitbull was by far the most different. It was almost like night and day. What, what, what and
0: does he do? What, 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 some of the, what, what are the things that surprised you about him as, as a person or businessman?
2: So we go there. He almost has these two personas. He has Pitbull, who's on stage, and then he has his personal self, Armando Perez, mm-hmm. which is really a, a businessman. And he always talks about it's called the music business. And without the business part, you're not in the music business. Hmm. And, you know, we get there and there's this really cool interview. We're sitting on the balcony of his condo overlooking Miami as the sun is setting. And his PR person goes to me and goes, you know, before the interview starts, he goes, Alex, look, you can talk about anything. Just don't talk about drug dealing. And I'm like, yeah, of course, no worries. You know, I, there's no need for me to ruffle any feathers. So we get into the interview. And I'm
0: sure Bill Gates had the same ground rules.
2: <laughs> that was Yeah, that was Gates' only rule yeah. too. So I'm sitting there with Pitbull and about an hour into this interview, he we really opens up and he's telling me all about drug dealing. I'm not asking any questions. He's yeah. just sharing all this stuff and he's telling me about how all the lessons that he uses today in the business world, he got from dealing drugs as a kid. And that was fascinating, and I just realized if I just almost stop asking people questions and just let him talk, he's going to say things I had never even thought to ask about. Mm. And that's what led me to probably the most surprising thing he said. There was just this moment of about 20 seconds of silence, which I just let sit to see what he would fill it with. And he takes a sip of his drink and he goes, you know, last month I was with Carlos Slim Jr. in Mexico. And I go to him and I said, I don't know what you got going on in your world, but I want to intern for you.
1: Hmm.
2: And, you know, you would think he's being sarcastic, but the look in his eyes told me he's being 100% serious. Mm -hmm. And Pitbull goes to Carlos Slim Jr. He goes, look, I'll get you coffee. I'll get you donuts, whatever you need. Like, even if it's just for a week, let me shadow you and intern for you. Run errands, whatever you need. And this was one of the craziest things I had heard because I'm sitting across from this guy. Who can headline Madison Square Garden, who's one of the biggest recording artists on earth, and he's offering to intern for Carlos Slim Jr. Yeah, this
0: is someone, if you ask anyone in the world, like who he's made it, and he's for him, he's still hungry, he still hasn't learned enough, he still hasn't experienced and that's that's fascinating.
2: Exactly. And what Pitbull told me is that he, you know, in the daytime walks around record labels like a king. At nighttime, he's walking through the offices of Apple and Google taking notes. Hmm. And that duality is what makes him him. It's about always staying an intern. And what Pitbull taught me is that if you ever get comfortable being an executive, being at the top of your game, that is the instant you begin to fail. And the key to continued success is always staying an intern. Hmm. You know, not a thing I would think I would learn from Mister Worldwide, but he just hit me over the head with that. Did he it get was the incredible?
0: Inter- did he get the internship he wanted?
2: <laughs> I don't know. I got to check in with him on that one.
0: That's wild. What other what other surprises did you come across? I mean, this book's full of surprises. But what what were some of the key you know standouts?
2: Oh, you know, the most surprising interview by far on a personal level was with Jessica Alba. Mm-hmm. So when I was sitting in her lobby of the Honest Company. What no one could have known was that I had just come back from the chemo center of <clears throat> of Cedars-Ani Hospital where my dad was getting treated for pancreatic cancer. And he had just been diagnosed a few weeks earlier. And there's something, and it's still very hard for me to put into words, the feeling of hearing That your dad has you know months to live Mm. um and it was really fresh and the wounds were still open and but i was sitting there in the lobby you know minutes away from interviewing jessica alba and i just you know i didn't want to blow this interview i take it i take my job really seriously so i just told myself look i need to compartmentalize i need to focus on the interview be professional and just stop thinking about death and i get escorted into jessica's office and we she was extremely kind we sit down on the couch And I thought I wanted the interview to be as positive as possible to Mm -hmm. take my mind off this. So I asked her, you know, the most positive question I could think of. I asked her, you know, what's the best lesson your mom ever taught you? I just try to go to the opposite side of the spectrum. And she, you know, takes a moment to think and she looks at me and she goes, my mom taught me to appreciate every moment you have with your parents because you never know when they'll be gone. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, my insides are burning when she says that. Wow. And she just keeps going on. She goes, my mom told me to appreciate every second because your parents will be gone like this. And I'm like, you know, I'm cringing. So I had to change the subject. So I asked, her, I asked her like an easy question, which I knew the answer to already just to change the topic. I asked her, how did you start The Honest Company?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, she's given that answer a 100 times before. And it's always this very positive story. And Jessica, again, for some reason, I, I'll never understand. She looks at me and goes, I was thinking about mortality. And I was like, what? What?" And she goes, I realized when I was pregnant how easily those you love can die. And I'm I, literally, I'm, you know, just I feel trapped right now. Jessica Alba, and who just, is
0: just bumming, bumming you out big time? <laughs> oh,
2: my God. And then she just goes on telling me about how she grew up with a family surrounded by death and cancer and she's talking about death and cancer you know her aunt had cancer her mom had cancer cousin had cancer her grandma had cancer and she keeps talking about death and cancer and death and cancer until I literally burst and I just like say my dad just got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and Jessica slams her hand on the couch and goes fuck and it felt like she splashed a bucket of ice water in my face hmm. and lifted a weight off my shoulders I didn't even know it was there. And from that moment on, that interview was no longer an interview. And it was probably one of the best moments of the entire book because not only did she teach me you know phenomenal lessons about how she built honest company, she also made me feel less alone. Hmm. And I'll always be grateful for that.
0: It's amazing, right? One little gesture like that, you would never – I mean, who would have thought – um, I'm sure that was a different reaction than you get when, you know, you told other people. Oh, uh, yeah, because everyone, you know, of course, you know. What was you meant what that, that touched you so much about that, just that one quick slap?
2: It was the first time, you know, everyone always says, oh, I'm so sorry. I, uh, I'm thinking of you, which is nice. But there was something about Jessica's visceral reaction because I think she's been there so many times, mm-hmm. which made me feel finally someone gets it. And it's that empathy, that ability to know what that low valley feels like that has actually enabled Jessica when, you know, most celebrities, when they start a business, they're doing a perfume line or, you know, a high-end clothing line. It allowed her to create a company that has resonated with so many people. Mm -hmm. It's because of that empathy, not despite of it.
3: And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes interview podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask Why? Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to their rate and term in real time? And why can't there be a client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your 10th, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process. It gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com Forbes. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030.
1: When you're wearing the
3: right outfit, it feels
1: good. Like finding an onion ring in your french fries, good. Feel that way every single day when you work with a Trunk Club personal stylist. Meet your stylist at trunkclub.com. That's T R U N K C L U B dot com.
0: I think a lot of people, when they have children or are about to have children, that's when they start looking at actually looking at these things, like looking at the shampoo, looking at the food in their body. And my wife, like many, and many of the mothers get obsessed and they they want every product to at least be. Clean and safe, and I think she 's had a great service on that
2: absolutely it 's phenomenal
0: and you talk about you, you, you know you talk about this journey of you through the book, and you know you mentioned your father and it 's in the book as well um, and unfortunately, you lost your father during this process yeah how is this i mean and that was in the middle of it how were you able to kind of pull it to was the book a saving grace in, in a way to kind of put your put your head down to focus to kind of you know plow through something
2: so my dad got diagnosed about you know, later into the process, and he passed away as I was finishing up the editing of it. Gotcha. And what I had learned, and it's weird, I I know this sounds weird, but in many ways, I don't feel like the author of this book. I almost feel like the first student. Hmm. Because I still, to this day, I, I did yesterday, when I don't know what to do, I open up the book and read the advice from these people. And while my dad was passing away i kept turning to the maya Angelou chapter because she talked about so much of this mm-hmm. and one of the things that she talks about not only in the interview but in her work in general was that how your pain if you lean into it and explore it is actually one of your greatest strengths and quincy Jones. Echoed the same thing when I spoke to him. He said, "Your music can be no more, no less than you are as a human being." So, while on the one hand, my dad passing was undeniably the hardest thing I've ever been through,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and you know, from a time perspective too, I I wasn't able to write, I wasn't able to work for for months. Yeah. But when I was finally able to get back to writing, even if it was just for one hour a day, two hours a day. There was a new depth to the words, which no amount of practice or teachings could have given me.
0: It was the depth of pain. That's remarkable, and it's it's crazy that you're saying. You know, you became your first student. You can go back and take lessons. You, you actually wrote. You said there's no book. You wrote the book. You you needed to write. You need the. You right. Wrote, you uh, wrote I was dreaming you of reading. To, yeah, you wrote, wrote the book. You needed to read. Right. Yeah,
2: and I, and I keep rereading it to learn to learn what I need to know. It's, it's wild.
0: Are there any – I mean it's always kind of broad when you find like one – I think it's always manufactured if you have to find like one string that goes through you know, all these different people. But is it the kind of just the unconventional – is it taking – is it risk-taking? Is it not playing by the rules? Is it not doing what you're supposed to do? Is that like how all these people became great?
2: So I learned something really interesting about risk-taking, which I didn't expect to learn. You know, a lot of people, myself included, when I was starting out with this book, I thought all these people were fearless. You know, Elon Musk just seems so fearless. You know, Maya Angelou, they all just seem so fearless. What I've learned when I spoke to them is every single person was extremely scared. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: You know, Bill Gates, no one talks about this, but he was so scared about starting Microsoft and leaving college. That he took just one semester off from Harvard to start Microsoft, and when things weren't working out as well as he wanted, he actually went back to college again. And then it wasn't until later that he eventually dropped out. I see. You know, no one really talks about it. They just call him a dropout. They don't know how scared he was. With Zuckerberg, he had a very similar situation, where you know, Eduardo had to you know almost, uh, or it was actually Dustin had to almost beg him to take one semester off. Mm-hmm. And what I learned is that while none of these people were fearless, they were all extremely courageous. And what I've learned is that the difference between fearlessness and courage is that fearlessness is, you know, jumping off the cliff without thinking about it, whereas courage is looking at your fear, acknowledging it, studying the consequences yet still taking one step forward after mm-hmm. another
0: yeah and it's a grind i mean people think that overnight success like oh bill gates started the company so young in harvard and there's microsoft like all these uh, these take years to build and they take like many many incremental steps and we, we like to we like to simplify things i, I guess facebook was, right. was super fast but a lot of these things it's like your it's persistence but also doing small things with doing it well over and over and over again right
2: right One of the biggest lessons I learned in this book is that there is no such thing as a tipping point. When I started out on this journey, I was looking for the, you know, there had to be this tipping point. You know, when did Bill Gates just tip and become a billionaire? When did, Mm -hmm. you know, Facebook just tip and be the biggest social network? And what I realized is that a tipping point is only visible in hindsight. It's a lot easier when you're a, a writer studying back on history to say, oh, that was the moment. But when you're in the trenches, when you're actually, you know, hands in the dirt, there is no tipping. It's just constant pushing, mm-hmm. which is exactly what you were referring to.
0: If you were let's say you were a, you were teaching your when you're 18 years old in freshman college and you were teaching a class on what you learned in these life lessons, what would you be telling an 18-year-old who's about to like start their path in life?
2: So if we go back to that you know, the visual of the third door analogy, what I would tell someone who's just starting out and it doesn't matter if they're 18, if they're 58, it's less about an age or more about a stage of anyone yeah. who's setting off to start something new. What I would tell them is to understand that the hardest part of leaving a dream of starting something new isn't the actual act of achieving it. The hardest part is leaving the line for the first door whether it's you know college or a job or just you know your community that you grew up in life is a lot more comfortable when you're you know surrounded by people you know told what to do there's a lot more certainty and there's a lot more comfort mm-hmm. but no one has ever achieved a dream from the comfort of certainty so the hardest thing about achieving a dream isn't taking the third door it's about ditching the line of the first door and that's the biggest thing People have to understand. It's that initial step of uncertainty and fear that's the biggest barrier to them getting what they want.
0: Because I guess once you make that leap, once you quit that job or leave school or do whatever. You have no choice. There's no choice. Yeah. There's no more. You can't backslide. I mean, you can always get another job, but it's like you have no, there's no more safety net. Like you're either going to do this or it's going to fail and you do something else. But there's no more that like moonlighting, like, oh, I always have my day job. When there's no day job, that's your day job.
2: (laughs) That's a hundred percent right.
0: So you're twenty-five, you spent seven years chasing down all of these people, getting their lessons, you've you've written a book. What are you what's next for you?
2: When I had started writing the book, it was never actually about a book. It was about this larger mission. And you know, I know this might sound naive, but I just really believed in the beginning, and I still believe this to this day, that if all these people come together. You know, not for press, not to promote anything, but really just to share their best wisdom with the next generation. People can do so much more. And from this point on, now that the book is done, my mission is about sharing this wisdom with as many people as possible. And what I've learned is that at the soul of this book, it's really about possibility. Because when you change what someone believes is possible, you change what becomes possible. And there's one story I actually came across while I was researching the book that really, you know, paints this picture perfectly. And the story is about this teacher. She was teaching for Teach for America. This is, I think, a, a decade or so back. And she was assigned to a school in Baltimore, you know, really rundown school in a really tough neighborhood.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And she has a class of, I think, maybe second graders. And one day she decides, all right, we're not going to do math today. We're going to take out paper and crayons, and I want you guys to color a picture of your biggest dream in life, of what you want to be when you grew up. And you know, all the kids grab the coloring and the paper, and they're drawing the pictures. But there was this one boy in the back who was sitting completely still for minutes on end hmm. until finally, about 20 minutes later, he grabs the coloring. You know, crayons and starts drawing his picture and turns it in. And as the teacher's going through the paper, she sees that that boy drew a picture of a pizza delivery man.
1: Hmm.
2: And she's a bit concerned. So she calls his mother that night and explains the situation.
0: It could have been worse. You could have drawn a podcast host.
1: <laughs> so,
2: you know, the mother explains to the teacher that it's actually not surprising, sadly. Because the only male figure in her son's life who isn't in jail and isn't on drugs is his uncle who delivers pizza. Mm -hmm. And the lesson I learned from that is that young people will always reach for the highest branch they can see. But it's our job. And I think, you know, society's job to really illuminate those branches. And that's really the mission of this book moving forward.
0: Do you want to use this book as to to launch a career, whether it's it's speaking, whether it's Coaching, whether it's a, a, like a form of media, like what do you what are you thinking right now? And you know, you might not even need an answer. I know you're trying to get out there on, on and you know, make pe- get people this in people's hands.
2: Yeah, so speaking is a great way to get, you know share books. Doing media is a great way to share books, um, but really the third door energy, I think, hopefully can transcend this book into more. So whether that's whether it's documentaries or you know other kinds of, whether it's film or television or podcasts, sharing this third door energy with the lessons and transcending it from a book into other forms of media is really going to be my focus over the next five years.
0: Interesting. And no more books for now. I'm sure this one took a lot out of you. (laughs)
2: Yeah. It
0: was, it's been a really long seven years,
2: but it's been, you know, the most fulfilling thing in my life.
0: That's wild, man. and so basically, you really want to help, maybe make this a brand, make this kind of a a, a way of thinking, a way of teaching, uh, whether it's a series or interviews, or documentaries.
2: Yeah, my dream. So the ultimate, you know, it's hard to quantify, but the the ultimate dream for me is that you know, in about ten years, you know, you're you're sitting in your house one day on a on a weekend, and your your kid comes up to you and is like, "Oh, Dad, I just I got this." internship at google and you're like what the hell you're you're 13 years old how did you do that Mm. and he goes all right i just took the third door that's the ultimate vision for this book where i can inject that third door mindset into the next generation
0: is this out now or is it going out coming out soon so the
2: book is in bookstores june 5th
0: that was terrific i want to thank alex benayan the author of the third door
2: thank you again steve i appreciate it man
0: that's it for this episode of the Forbes interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with a question or comment, please reach us at interview at podcastone.com. Hi, I'm Spencer Raskoff, the CEO of Zillow Group. And I have a new podcast here on Podcast
2: One called Office Hours. Listen as I have one-on-one conversations with other CEOs. We have the kind of conversations that can only happen between peers, tackling tough questions, sharing hard-won insights, and helping to define what leadership means today. Join me twice a month on Office Hours
0: exclusively on Apple Podcasts, Podcast PodcastOne.com, and the new Podcast One app.
1: When you're wearing the right outfit, it feels good. Like hitting all green lights good finding an onion ring in your french fries good getting dressed can feel just like that when you have a trunk club stylist because not only do we send you lots of outfits and accessories we also teach you how to style them and since we're a nordstrom company you know you'll be well taken care of look and feel great every single day with trunk club meet your personal stylist at trunkclub.com that's t-r-u-n-k-c-l-u-b.com
0: at the border